everyone. Welcome to Who's Training Who, Episode 4. I'm Tom. I'm Allie. This podcast is all about dogs. We talk training, behavior, give tips and tricks, talk to people who do cool things with dogs and or for dogs. We hope that by listening to this podcast, we can help you have a better relationship with your dog and any dog you meet. On today's episode, we are talking with Emily Strong, who co-authored with Allie Bender, Canine Enrichment for the Real World. And on our Ask a Trainer segment, our Allie is going to give some tips on how to deal with barking dogs. So let's get started. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. I think talking about enrichment is perfect for what's going on in the world with COVID-19. Most of us have been on lockdown for a bunch of weeks now, and what seemed like a fun idea to have our dogs home 24-7 was great at first, but if other people's dogs are like my dogs, we're starting to get irritated of each other. So hopefully you can help us out with some ideas about what's going on in our dog's minds and what we can do to help ourselves out and them out. But first, let's get to know who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started working with dogs. So I've always been an animal lover and I used to play animal trainer when I was a kid. And so I went to a tour of the vet school, uh, the local vet school. And they said, if you want to get into vet school, it's not just about grades, it's about experience. So I took that literally. And on my 11th birthday, I started volunteering at an animal shelter and I never stopped working with animals since then. I've been working with animals in shelters and rescue groups and vet clinics in wildlife rehabs, aviaries, stables. And then 12 years ago, I became a behavior consultant and I've been doing that full-time ever since. Do you just focus on dogs or do you, or do you deal with any type of animal? I don't just focus on dogs. I actually entered the behavior consulting world through parrots actually. And then I ended up I kind of fell into dogs when I worked at Best Friends Animal Society on the behavior team in the dog department. And then that's how I met Allie, my co-author and my business partner. And then when we left Best Friends and went back into business for ourselves and started writing this book, it kind of sucked me into the dog world. But I actually work with all species and I I enjoy that. I I would never want to stop doing that. So what made you... It made you and Allie decide that you guys needed to write a book about enrichment. What was the need that you were seeing? We didn't decide just to write the book. What happened was a friend and colleague of ours uh, at APDT conference had a conversation with John from Dogwise, and John told her that they had been looking for somebody to write a book on enrichment for 10 years. He was like, do you want to write it? And she was like, no, I don't want to write Nobody it. Nobody in 10 years wanted to write a book. <laughs> Nobody. I don't know the full story behind that. I don't even want to venture a guess. So she came back home from the conference, and Allie and I had kind of got a rep- gotten a reputation for our work in enrichment. I had written a handbook for parrots about parrot enrichment and had implemented some programs that were being used by several aviaries and pet stores. And Allie had done her in school, her research was in enrichment and she had started the enrichment program at the shelter where she worked. And so we both came to Best Friends with a strong background in enrichment. And so we were applying those principles to the programs at Best Friends that we had created. We both were kind of known as the enrichment people there. Our friend, when she came back from the conference, she, she asked me, she's like, you know, Dogwise wants to start, uh, wants somebody to write a book on enrichment. 
uh, do you want to do it? And I was like, I can't write a book. Uh, what do you mean? Like, who am I to write a book? But she's like, just talk to them. I think, I think you can do it. And so I had a conversation with uh, Dogwise and we were talking about what the book would look like. And I was just talking through it. I was like, well, I would want it to be very comprehensive. And, you know, and Dogwise had said, we really, what we want is somebody to walk the line between rooted in science, but accessible to lay people. We don't want a textbook. Textbooks exist. And we don't want how to stuff a Kong because there are hundreds of websites that do that. We need something to kind of really walk that fine line. And I was like, that's my jam. That's what I do. So like that, I, I'm into that. Uh, there's just one thing. I will not do this project without Ali. She and I do everything together. We're better together. And they were like, yeah, sure. You can co-author. That's fine. So I, I hung up with Dogwise and I was like, oh, I should probably tell Allie <laughs> that we're going to write a book. So the next day I like strolled in and I was like, guess what, Allie, you and I are writing a book for Dogwise on enrichment. <laughs> well, so what's the look on her face? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, she, she kind of had that like panic deer in the headlights look, but also exasperation because I have a tendency of just kind of like dragging her into things. <laughs> I was like, Ali, I have this idea to do this national shelter program where we help shelters and rescue groups with behavior issues. And you're going to help me with it. And she was like, oh, and now I'm like, Ali, we're going to write a book together. So I think it's funny and ironic because obviously we place a lot of emphasis in the book on giving learners agency and control over their outcomes. And yet I'm a huge hypocrite because I didn't really give Allie any choices. I was like, we're just doing this together. Buckle up. We're, we're going. <laughs> how long did it take to write the book? Like how did you have to start years before? And because yeah. it was released in 2019, right? Yes. It was released in, in 2019. We had the conversation. I had the conversation with Dogwise in which I wrote Allie in in the fall of 2015. I can't remember if it was November or December. So it was a four-year process. The first two years were doing a ton of research. I think we have 93 citations in the book, and that was maybe 10% of the research papers that we'd actually read and kind of sorted through as we were in the writing process. So it was almost a full year of research and writing the skeleton, and then a year of fleshing out the book. And then a year of peer review and, and feedback and editing and all of that. And then a year of prep of, of all of the post work. So yeah, it was a four-year process. Wow, that's crazy. Do you ever, did you write it in a way that what you say wouldn't go out of, out of date or out of style? Or was there always that fear when you're writing it that what you're typing now, especially if it's a four-year process, that could become out of date real quick? I think there's some fundamental principles that are, are going to be universal and timeless. Anytime we're talking about science, there, there is an expiration date, right? Because, you know, a hundred years from now, people are going to read the book and be like, oh, how quaint, because we're going to know so much more in a hundred years than we know now. There are some aspects of it that are, that are going to be relevant forever. But yeah, the, the, the power and the drawback of taking a science-based approach is that science is continually evolving. We are by necessity kind of dating ourselves a little bit but if we worried about that we'd never get anything done you know so it's a statement of what we know right now and and I'm okay with that <laughs> right and, re and reading some of the book I have to say like I think it's going to last for a bunch of years because 
what you're saying is still new to a lot of people that there's still people who believe really old school stuff. That's enough questions for me. I'm going to have Allie take over and Allie and Emily are going to have trainer talk and I'll try to interrupt if I need something explained because I don't understand. Hopefully I don't have to say anything to you guys because you guys are both pretty good at making things good for the common person to understand what's going on. Allie, take it away. So I don't necessarily have specific questions, but I figured we could just kind of chat about some ideas that you have right now as far as mental stimulation for dogs. I've been, you know, encouraging people to get creative. For me this week, I've been like any container that I finish that a dog can eat, I put in the freezer. So peanut butter, yogurt, cottage cheese, putting them in the freezer, getting them out, giving them to dogs as needed. I have five dogs in my house right now, so it's been a lot (laughs) for me um, to kind of keep continually trying new things. I mean, thankfully, I have Kongs on wholesale and, you know, they're, they're stocked and they're the different kinds and all that, but you know, there's only so much that I can do with, with store-bought products. You know, I've just been trying to do a bunch of different creative things. Us being home all day, no matter what memes you've seen, it really isn't the greatest thing in the world that we're home all day. You know, they like seeing us, but they also need their, their space too. You know, they, they need to sleep. And is that part of enrichment is that they do get to have rest. So keeping a routine is important. One of the aspects of sense of stability or calmness, combating anxiety is predictability, having uh, some predictability of what, what to expect. One of the things that we're seeing a lot right now is because people's schedules have gone away because they're not, they're not working right now or they're working from home. They haven't necessarily maintained their dog's routines either. And so that disruption in routine can cause some anxiety for dogs. And also, like you said, some needs that we have historically been meeting unintentionally just by virtue of our schedules being what they are, are not being met now. And people may not necessarily recognize that. Yes, rusting is an aspect of enrichment. Dogs are a crepuscular species. We humans are diurnal. Diurnal means we're up with the sun. We're awake and working when the sun is and then we sleep at night. Crepuscular means active at dawn and dusk, or most active peaks of activity at dawn and dusk, and then resting in the middle of the day and then resting at night. So dogs not only need more sleep than we do, but they rest more than we do during the day. So if we're home all the time and we're not making sure that dogs get that rest period, that can be very disruptive for them. In addition to all the other reasons that they may be climbing the walls right now, one of them is that they may be like a cranky toddler who isn't getting their midday nap because they are in fact cognitively toddlers who are not getting their midday naps, right? I encourage people as much as possible to stick with your regular routine when you can and where you can. If you're in a place that allows you to drive around, I mean, if you're in a place that where p- cops are pulling people over for driving, don't do this. Follow the laws. But if you're in a place where shelter in place means uh, stay in your car, <laughs> I, I still recommend that people leave their house at the time that they normally would and go, you don't have to be gone for the full eight hours, but go drive around, go look at some new scenery, take a walk somewhere that's away from other people. If, if you live in a place that allows you to do that and then come home so that you're maintaining that routine, the dog knows at 7.30 a.m. My, my family leaves the house. 
And even though you're coming home earlier than usual, you're still able to maintain that part of the routine. And the resting during the day, just because you're at home with your dog, doesn't mean that you have to be interacting with your dog during parts of the day that you haven't historically done so. So it's okay to let your dog go into the bedroom or the crate or wherever they would normally relax and sleep for eight hours. <laughs> if that's what they want to do, like let them do it. You don't have to, just because you're home doesn't mean that your dog needs to be engaged with you all of the time. Because what we're going to see, in addition to what we're seeing now with the disruption routine causing some more agitation in dogs, a little more anxiety or hypervigilance, then it's going to be even harder for them when we do eventually all get to go back to work and go to routine. And then suddenly your dog is like, oh, I forgot how to, I forgot how to do this. How, how do I stay at home alone? I don't remember. So as much as possible, if you can afford to keep hiring your dog walker, keep hiring your dog walker. You can maintain that distance still. You don't have to interact directly with your dog walker in order to have them walk your dog. They can use their own leashes and unclip those leashes so that there's not any cross-contamination. There are ways to be safe and maintain that distance that we need during the pandemic without fully disrupting your dog's routine. Yeah, I've been talking to a lot of new puppy owners. A lot of them haven't even purchased crates yet. And I'm like, okay, yes, let's please go get a crate. We need to start preparing our puppies to go back to work. And they're talking about how they can't hold it for more than, you know, two hours or an hour. And that's because, you know, they're not mandating any kind of crate time. They're not mandating any kind of nap time. And I've been getting a lot of calls like my puppy gets aggressive at night. And I'm like, well, I'm sure they're overly tired at this point. I'm like, set their crate up in a quiet room if you possibly, possibly can. You know, the, the quietest room you can find in your house, put them in there for a couple hours at a time as, you know your routine would normally have them do. People have to start preparing their dogs to not develop a bunch of separation anxiety as soon as we get back to normal work schedules. I've asked Allie this question before too. Have you seen in the last bunch of years, and maybe it's been like this forever, an uptick in dogs who have separation anxiety? Is that becoming more of a thing? Separation anxiety is a little bit of a tricky thing to talk about. I won't go into a lot of detail because that's not the you know primary topic, but the Reader's Digest version is the more we're learning about separation anxiety, the more complex we're realizing it is. Some research came out in January, actually, that found that there's actually 11 different types of separation-related problems, and a lot of things that we used to define as other behavior issues are actually sub subcategories or subsets of separation related problems. So I think it's uh, more along the lines of kind of like heart conditions. Back in the day, everything was labeled as heart disease. <laughs> and as we've learned more about cardiology, we've, we've been able to distinguish between hundreds of cardiac diseases people are like, oh, everybody's got heart disease these days. It's like, well, it's not necessarily that there's more heart disease now. It's that we know more about it. So we're able to diagnose very specifically. So I think there is an element of that with, with the separation related problems. The more we know about it, the more we're recognizing it in cases that have previously been ignored or misdiagnosed. That being true, I think also we have a culture in this country that ends up setting dogs up to develop separation-related problems because of 
how we view dogs, how we view dog behavior, our lifestyle, not necessarily being healthy for us either. There's so many contributing factors, but anytime you have a social species, and especially with dogs, because they've been in a symbiotic relationship with humans for a minimum of 18,000 years, um, there is that risk of developing a separation-related problem. And we exacerbate it with how we, we treat it a lot of times because we're treating it inappropriately. So that is a little bit of a tangent from our primary discussion, but uh, yes, the, the answer is yes to both. Yes, I think it's getting worse because of our cultural issues. And yes, um, it's also always been there because we have, we've understood less about it historically than we understand about it now. So Emily, if you just want to give our listeners some tips about some ways they can enrich their dogs without having to go to the store or without having to wait a month to two months to get a package delivered to their home. I think in order to answer that question, we have to first define what enrichment is and what its function is, because a lot of people think of enrichment as play or keeping animals busy, and that's certainly an aspect of enrichment, but enrichment at its core means meeting all of an animal's needs in order for them to be behaviorally, physically, and emotionally healthy, essentially. That's a little bit of a slapdash version of the definition, but for our purposes today, it'll work. What that means is looking at every aspect of their welfare, their care, and making sure that we're meeting all of their needs. So when we're talking about enriched lives with dogs, that doesn't have to mean a lot of gadgets and toys and gizmos. I have, I think people who come to my house are shocked by how few of those like items that I own because I literally wrote the book on enrichment and people are expecting my house to look like Toys R Us for dogs. And it doesn't because I, I don't need a lot. Of, I don't use a lot of things. I'm not disparaging them. I think they're all wonderful tools to reach a goal. You don't need stuff to meet dogs' needs, right? One of their toy boxes is our recycle bin. We leave the lid off the recycle bin and our dogs just go help themselves, pull something out, chew on it, tear it up, destroy it. And then I sweep up the pieces and put them back in. So they're just, they're just our like trash compactors. <laughs> and that's not appropriate for every dog, right? Because some dogs would eat those pieces and it would make them sick. But for our dogs, that's appropriate because they don't, they can engage with that safely. So we have to think of um, what need is that meeting? Why would we let our dogs do that? So the needs that are being met with those strategies our uh, dogs are opportunistic scavengers. And so their literal job, in, if they were wild animals, if they were feral dogs and they weren't in homes, their literal job would be scrounging around and finding what's available and getting into it and eating it. We have to find a way to meet that need. So Allie, you found a beautiful way to meet that need by freezing those containers and then leaving them out for them. I would challenge you to up that ante if you can arrange your environment so that there's no risk of guarding. <laughs> Put the dogs in different parts of your house and hide those containers and let the dogs find the containers and then get to lick out the yummy stuff. So we'd get even more of that scavenging skill implemented into what you're already doing. 
I do play like find it games. I, yeah. That's what we do every morning. I, you know, cause I, everybody is separated in my house. So, you know, everybody has their times out, which is also helpful for when other dogs get to sit in their crates or their rooms and still kind of stay on that normal routine of a schedule. But, you know, we do find it. So like Chunk is in the bedroom. Um, before I started the talking, I gave her a find it game because she likes to throw herself up against the bedroom wall when she hears new people talking downstairs. <laughs> so that's what we've been doing for a lot of my virtual sessions. I'm like, hey, Chunk, go find it. And, you know, nice. there's treats hidden under things and in the blankets. And I mean, my bed is covered in crumbs, but I don't care because guess what? My dog is happy and she's not, you know, banging on the door while I'm trying to talk to clients. So I'll take it. Whereas, you know, another dog's in upstairs playing with a Kong and another dog has got the Bible out full of dinner. And yeah, I use some of the, the store-bought stuff, but yeah, no, there's a lot of, a lot of find it that goes on. Um, one of my board and train clients actually sent me with a bag of cantaloupe and was like, she plays find it every night after dinner. And I'm like, awesome. I do that at breakfast time. So I'll give it to her for dinner. So great. Um, and I've been using like my pop box and feeding kibble out of that and kind of hiding kibble at the same time. So it's kind of like foraging, but also like, here's your main source. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of, a lot of that for all five of these dogs when the weather is, so it's snowing here today. Um, so when the weather is like this, we're not getting out and hiking nine miles a day. So I'm going to interject again here and, and be the, might, might be an obvious answered by you guys, but for people who have never done find it with their dogs, who have never done this type of enrichment with their dogs, how do you start doing that? Is there this like formula you have to do or do, or is it just natural for dogs? Like, you know, if I did that with my dogs, just put a box in another room, it might take days before they actually go into that room to actually find it. So how do you start incorporating that into your life? So I tell people all the time that dogs are kind of like the the toddler in the movie the incredibles who had the superpowers but had no idea how to use them dogs have the cognitive capacity of 18 to 20 month old humans so they are mentally toddlers they have these superpowers but that doesn't mean they know how to use them they have to be taught feral dogs their moms teach them how to track and trail scents and we we should do that for our dogs in our pet homes because no one else is going to teach them they don't they don't just because they have the capacity doesn't mean they have the skill right unless they've learned it somewhere else along the way and some dogs just like you know people and other animals some dogs pick things up a little faster than others and so some dogs it's easier to train it than others just like any skill we start easy and then build up increase criteria over time so when I'm teaching a dog find it I'm going to start with something I know they already love I don't I don't want to have to try to be instilling value and teaching a skill at the same time so I'm going to start with something they love I'm going to say my cue find it go hunt whatever the cue is going to be and then I just scatter those things kind of right in front of the dog. <laughs> and then I'm going to sit back and let them work. I'm not going to interfere unless I can see that they're struggling. If they are having a hard time finding something, if they've got given up or gotten discouraged, then I'm going to help them by pointing near to, but not directly at the thing and repeating my cue, find it and pointing near. And then when they find it, good job, that was awesome. Yay. Right. So enthusiasm is highly reinforcing for most dogs, not all dogs, but most dogs. And then when they can do that little easy game without needing my help, 
then I'm going to up the ante a little bit. So scatter across a larger space, maybe start to scatter it on different textures that are maybe easy, harder for the dogs to see on, uh, where they might have to start using their nose, not just their eyes. And then when they can do that without my help, I'm going to make it a little more difficult. So I have one dog who we don't know his full history, but when, uh, when we got him, he was very, very scared and kind of shut down. And so we had to start him at the very, very beginning. <laughs> Our other dog was feral for the first year of her life. So she was already incredibly proficient. <laughs> so it's just uh, taking the skills she already had and putting them on a cue so that it was meaningful for her in our environment. But you just gradually increase the difficulty until they're at the stage where both of our dogs scatter feed. So our meals, we say find it, I scatter the food and they have to use their nose to find every piece of their food. So that is every day for their meals, both meals a day. They have to use their nose to find every piece of their food. So that is scavenging, it's foraging, it's using their nose, it's mental exercise. So that one activity by moving their food from a bowl to scatter feeding, the way that we feed them meets three enrichment needs. That's efficiency right there right? Who would have thought? Who would have thought, right? And it doesn't take me any more time than if I just dumped their food in a bowl. It's not time consuming for me, but for the dogs, it's life changing, right? It's a game changer for them. The same thing with me leaving the, um, my, the recycle bin open for the dogs and Allie doing the find it game with her dogs. We're letting them scavenge and in Allie's case, forage. So that's meeting a need. And it's not taking a lot of time out of her day. It doesn't require new fancy gadgets. <laughs> it's just using what we already have to meet a need. Another aspect of care, especially in the shelter in place um, time, is physical exercise, which if, we're, if, if you're in a place where there's nowhere for you to go to take your dog out and be safe and, and stay away from other people, that's extra challenging for you. So exercises at home are gonna be more important. So that could look like a flirt pole if you have one. If you don't have one, trying to find the materials right now may be a little bit tricky, but there's lots of, of information on the internet about how to make flirt poles. Uh, you can teach your dog how to fetch if they don't already know how to do that. Uh, we play a targeting game with a lot of my clients' dogs where we teach dogs to put their foot on something like a rag or a towel. And then we put rags in different parts of the house and we cue them to run to the target. So they're running around the house, put, racing to put their paw on the rags in the different places. So we can get that cardiovascular exercise that they need in the house. Um, I do that a lot with clients who are in condos or apartments where they don't have a yard and it's hard for them to get out with their dog as much as their dog would like. So, so that is an aspect of care, but there can be too much of a good thing. <laughs> Trying to address every behavior issue with exercise is counterproductive and inappropriate. And just because you're stuck at home bored doesn't mean that taking your dog for 20 walks a day is going to be enriching for them because we've met the need with the first, I don't know, four walks <laughs> and the other walks may just be really disrupting to their routine or maybe become uninteresting. When we're talking about meeting needs, we have to pay attention to what the dog, how the dog is responding to something. And if they're way into it, we can keep doing it. 
if they're not way into it, doing more of it is not going to meet that need more. Sometimes less is more when it comes to meeting needs, just like with people, right? In terms of addressing anxiety, research has shown that 22 minutes of sustained cardiovascular exercise every day for two months will reduce anxiety. More exercise does not reduce anxiety more. So if you have a dog who is climbing the walls and really anxious right now, it is a good idea to make sure that they are getting 22 minutes of sustained cardiovascular exercise a day, but doing more is not going to make them less anxious. That is, that's research. We, we know that that's true. <laughs> it's been scienced. So if they're, the dog is still anxious after they're getting that amount of exercise, we need to look at all the other needs and see if, if there are other needs that aren't being met that are contributing to anxiety, which could be as simple as the routine like we talked about earlier. And you brought up an interesting point with the, the textures. So one of the easy things that I give a lot of my clients is to get like a cheetah blanket or like a um, zebra stripe blanket and throw kibble on there because I'm like, the dogs can't see it. They have to use their nose. And that's an easy way to increase your, your find it without, you know, having to spend money on a bunch of things, you know, go buy that, those dollar blankets from Walmart, throw a bunch to the shelters if you, you can afford it and keep a couple for yourself and use them as, as foraging opportunities. I also like to use ratty old towels that you, you don't really care about anymore, especially if they are red or green because dogs are red, green, colorblind. And so a brown treat on a red or a green towel is going to blend in. That can be another way to do it. You mess up the towel. You don't put it down nice and smooth and flat. You mess it up and scatter some treats on that. And, they, and it's a really good way to start dogs off if they um, aren't already proficient. If I do that with my feral dog, she, she finishes it in five <laughs> minutes and she's like, lame. Yeah. That's so for great. I'm in college. Yeah. My snuffle mats, everybody's like, really? And I'm like, all right, fine. We're going to put a little bit in the snuffle mat. So you start working on that. And then I'm hiding the rest of your kibble all over the house. And I'm like, yeah. good luck finding like 500 little pieces of kibble when you eat two cups every meal. And when dogs get to where they're pretty proficient at snuffle mats, I have an intermediary step between just a full scatter, you know, scatter, like a scavenger hunt and a snuffle mat. So I, uh, I have clients get three or four snuffle mats and split the meal between those three or four mats and then hide the mats around the house. So the dogs have to do a little bit of a treasure hunt to find the mats, but then it's easy for them. Once they see the mat, they can go over and use their nose to get all the food out. So that's kind of a good intermediary challenge between where Allie's dogs are at and where my dogs are at with full-blown full scavenger hunts and the single snuffle mat, which is, you know, a little bit easier, you know. So there's, def there's definitely ways to ratchet up the challenge so that your dog is always having to, to, to kind of overcome something rather than just it being easy for them and if it's easy for them, then it's not mental exercise, right? It's not really challenging. So always looking for ways to up the ante. And you were talking about having the dogs run from target to target. Um, another fun thing is teaching your dog to play hide and seek. So they yeah. find you and they're, you know, running around, they're going up the stairs, they're going down the stairs, you know, depending on the size of your house, obviously I'm in a townhouse and, uh, 
my dog's like, oh, you hide behind this door. She's not behind this door. Let's go behind this door. Oh, she's not behind the shower curtain. Let's go, you know, here. And I can just hear her like checking every spot she's used to. And I'm like, all right, now I need new hiding spots and I have nowhere left to hide. But, you know, it's fun to introduce it to new dogs. I love that. We have a very open floor plan. So the hide and seek game would not, would not, would be pretty short game for us. Yeah. (laughs) But I love it when people have the setup to be able to do that. That's wonderful. Yeah. I don't have a huge setup for it, but I have enough. I can hide behind a couple doors at least. So I think you've hit, hit on it a little bit that everything in moderation. So with that, having too much enrichment can be a bad thing for a dog. Are there signs that normal people who aren't trainers can tell hey, maybe I'm doing a little too much. I would say that there's too much of activities or of stuff, but if there's too much of it, it's not enrichment. One of the defining criterion for something, for an activity or a strategy to be enrichment is that the animal has to have agency over that experience. Agency means that they have control over their outcomes. They have predictability, choices, and control. That is fundamental to it being enriching because if they're not choosing to engage, then it's not meeting a need. And by the way, that's not like hippie woo, like that's five decades of science, (laughs) which we cover. There's a full chapter about agency in the book because it's fundamental to enrichment. So the answer to that question is if your dog is not choosing to engage in it, or if they're engaging because they have to, but they're clearly not happy about it, then it's not enrichment, full stop. That's just the way it is. If they're choosing to do it and they're doing it joyfully and willingly, then it is enrichment. And if they're not, it's not the end. So if, so yeah, if you're taking your dog out for the 20th walk and the dog looks at you like, really? You pull out the leash and they're like, Are are you for real? Uh, Then it's not enrichment, right? If you pull out a foraging toy and you give it to them and they look at it and look at you like, uh, I have no idea what this is. It's not enrichment. So yes, that agency is a critical criterion for something being enrichment. Yeah. And that brings up kind of a good point where we're, you know, tying it all in routine, meeting enrichment needs, making sure we're not overdoing a certain part of enrichment. Um, You know, my general routine here is everybody does some foraging in the morning. Then midday is for exercise, physical exercise, plus some, you know, sniffing around the prairies and stuff like that. Then we go into training for dinner. And then our evening is just kind of where we get to cuddle and love each other. And that's, that's pretty much our days. And we switch it up a little bit, but not too much. You know, we like to keep a routine. I like to make sure that I'm rotating the same dogs, you know, throughout the day. Um, Some of them can play with each other. So there is some dog dog interactions as well. So that's nice, but you know, having a routine as much as possible, keeping your dog sane, keeping ourselves sane, you know, as much as you can possibly do. And we have, so Allie and I created an enrichment chart for the book. And then after the book came out, we realized that we needed to help people learn how to use it. And so we actually have a resource for people. If you want to um, be able to objectively assess, am I meeting all of my dog's needs? What are all of my dog's needs? 
we have an enrichment chart and a free guide that will teach you how to use the enrichment chart. So you can go to petharmonytraining.com forward slash enrichment chart and get the free chart and the free guide. And then that's a really good way to objectively assess what are my dog's needs? Am I meeting them? What can I do to make sure that those needs are being met? In general, if your dog is acting out in some way, nuisance behaviors are just being fidgety or restless, that's a pretty good sign that at least one need isn't being met. So that's a free resource that you have at your disposal to help you troubleshoot while you're, I mean, at any time, but especially now while you're sheltering in place and your dog might be going stir crazy. <laughs> awesome. We'll put that in the show notes also. So listening to both of you talk, it you guys obviously know your stuff. So first off question, how does every trainer know this? And then if they don't, how did you learn about enrichment or did you go to school for it? Is there this, you know, kind of like Hogwarts where somebody goes and you learn about enrichment type stuff. So, so how, how does that work? So there's no regulations in uh, any of the animal behavior professions except veterinary behaviorists and behaviorists. And by the way, behaviorists in the United States of America are specifically people who have a higher degree in one of the behavior sciences, even though lots of people erroneously call themselves behaviorists. The only way to actually be a behaviorist is to have one a higher degree. Right. I've, I've seen that a lot in, in daycares and everyone's yeah. like, we have behaviorists on our, our team members are behaviorists. And I'm like, I promise oh, you they're you not. To, that's right. You have to stay <laughs> right. away. If anybody right. uses behaviorists that doesn't have a medical degree, you need to walk away. Or yeah, they don't have the, those letters at the end of their name. Right. Um, yeah. So there's no regulations in the dog training or behavior consulting fields or any of the animal training fields. So that means that people don't have to learn anything in order to be a dog trainer or a bird trainer or a behavior consultant. But even among or within the, the community of people who um, have been educated and worked, did the work to get some kind of a certification, that still doesn't mean that they necessarily have to have learned about enrichment in the same way that a veterinarian doesn't have to learn about psychopharmacology or nutrition, right? So I think it's beneficial and helpful. And there are some courses uh, available about enrichment, like KPA has an enrichment course, uh, Karen Pryor Academy has an enrichment course. The way that I learned about enrichment was through reading textbooks and coming from uh, the background of, of birds, where we're, we're, we're learning a lot or pulling a lot from the zoological sciences, where enrichment originated. Enrichment, enrichment originated in zoos, not in the pet community. And so I learned about enrichment directly from the source, from Dr. Hal Markowitz, who was the person who coined the term and developed the criteria for enrichment. And then what has happened over time is that it's kind of filtered down into the pet community. And so there's a lot, enrichment is a buzzword that a lot of people know and use, but understanding what it actually is and how to use it in a applicable way requires a little more in-depth study. So there's not, as far as I know, there's not really a way to tell if a trainer or behavior consultant has gotten um, any kind of education about enrichment, aside from just talking to them about it and asking. <laughs> so if, you, if you've learned about enrichment, you know who Hal Markowitz is, you can define enrichment as 
some version of meeting needs. But that's one of the reasons that Ali and I wrote the book, because we feel like this is such an important part of animal care that behavior professionals should know about it, right? And you can be a very good behavior professional and not know about enrichment to that depth, but it will make your practice better. It will make you better at your job if you understand this. So that's our, our goal, among other goals. One of our goals in writing the book was to help our colleagues um, to, to kind of enrich their own lives by learning more about this topic. One of the best things that I learned from Emily was that the first train home, I had Hunk at the time. He was obviously a mouthy little shit. And um, we were basically just creating an endurance athlete because I was like, yeah, let's just, you know, run him and run him and run him. A tired dog is a good dog. And obviously he super enjoys running and that was, you know, meeting one need, but you know, and it was just because I was so close to the situation, you know, I do all these enrichment things with my other two. And with Hunk, I was just like, no, he needs to be tired. And I was like, <laughs> why am I not doing mental enrichment with him? Like, why am I not doing like just doing a, a five minute training session? Why am I not getting him to eat out of Kongs or forage for his food when he's out? You know, and I was like, we are literally creating uh, an Olympic sport athlete and yeah. this dog and it's just making him worse. And as soon as I, you know, added in the, the mental aspect of it, his behavior changed tenfold. I mean, he's not perfect, oh, still, awesome. but <laughs> I was just like, hello, why do you like, why do you not do the same things for him as you do with your lazy dog? Like, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know that. I'm glad that you got something out of the workshop. That's great. Oh, I mean, I got way more than that, but you know, that was one of the, the big things at home for me. It was like, this uh -huh dog moment. is a monster. Yeah. And I was just yeah. like, oh my gosh, what do I do? And then I'm like, duh. Yeah. <laughs> we encounter that in shelters so much. There's so many shelters that we've worked with that have like just, you know, 20 treadmills and they just leash these dogs up and run them for like two hours. And then they have, and then they're like, we run these dogs all the time. And they're still like, you know, crazy. And they're climbing the walls. And it's like, yeah, cause you're because they're in a confined space and you are creating this need in them to run for hours a day. So that's something that we emphasize a lot in, in that workshop specifically because we see it so commonly in shelters. When in reality, what we need to be working on with those dogs is teaching them how to relax, right? So giving them calming exercises or teaching a relaxation protocol or something like that, which is the opposite of what a lot of shelters are trying to do, which is just run them more. And so that's something that we emphasize a lot in those workshops. And so I'm really glad that you got something from that because I never know what people are taking away from the workshops unless they explicitly no, tell me. So I went home that night and I was like, all right, hunk, we're changing our routine here. <laughs> let's, let's see what we can do. And I mean, yeah, he was getting some mental enrichment. It's not like I was just like, okay, you're dumb. You don't know anything. Let's just sure. run. But yeah, um, yeah, no, I definitely, definitely changed my, my outlook with him. Awesome. And it was just one of those things that was like, uh, duh, like you tell your clients this all the time. You're like, don't just exercise your dogs 24 seven. That just makes them more heightened most of the time. Yeah. But for hunk, I was just like, this is the only thing that works. And yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah. Now he lives a much more enriched life. Let's say that. <laughs> Yay. That's excellent. Well, thanks for telling Allie. I appreciate that. So Allie brought up a point that I didn't think about when she said, running hunk all the time, kind of build up an Olympic style athlete. So if you do like run with your dog all the time, or you walk them all the time, can you inadvertently 
make the at least the physical part of enrichment make that harder because you're building up that endurance and so what what you what used to be a half hour walk now has to be an hour or two hours or three or the run has to be eight miles now instead of four miles or so there so there is that that risk of doing it too much you run that risk of making it harder to do do the physical side of of the enrichment if that's all you're focusing on I used to run hunk at full speed 10 miles a day on the treadmill plus <laughs> other things. And like I said, he enjoyed it the whole time. He loves to run. I mean, that is one of the things that, that he loves to do. Yeah. But you know, now that we don't do that, he becomes tired after, you know, just a few minutes on the treadmill. And then we do some calming exercises and then, you know, he's always been super mellow and it's great, but you know, he's just able to be, a normal dog now instead of like I need to grab your pillows and I need to do that and you know it's not all the training and the enrichment he's also on meds but you know <laughs> we've right. uh, found the right combination of things for him yeah and now you know I don't want to um run away and cry all the time so <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean I generally tell clients if you want an athlete build an athlete if you don't want an athlete don't build an athlete. <laughs> yes. Don't put them on the treadmill on their weighted vest for, you know, 20 minutes to run 10 miles. Right. Well, it's weird to think like that though, because most people, I think when they talk about enrichment or just dogs that are, have a lot of energy is like, okay, go run, go run, go do this, yeah. go, let's just go run. That's what the dogs need. But in reality, after talking with you, it's showing that it's really not, it's not all, it's not the whole thing. That's part right. of it, but it's not the whole thing. Think about your adrenaline level when you're done exercising, you know, and all your endorphins are pumping. Feel how your dog feels when they're supposed to just come down from that. And then by the time they come down from it, you're like, all right, another 10 mile walk. And they're like, okay, cool. And you know, yeah, they're probably certain dogs are probably loving every minute of it, but others are like, no, I'm going to go hide my leash somewhere because please don't take me for another walk. I don't enjoy this. You might be loving it, but I'd rather just sleep on the couch. <laughs> right. I mean, and I think it it is well-intentioned and there's a certain amount of logic to it, but it's, it's one of those classic situations where if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? So if the only way you know how to solve a problem is by exercising a dog more, and Allie, you nailed it when you said a tired dog is a good dog. How often do we hear that in the training community? That's a mantra but it's a false mantra, right? Because uh, physical exercise is not by any means the only need that a dog has. I always explain to clients, you know, yes, a tired dog is a good dog, but I'm not just talking about taking your dog for a walk or a hike or a run or whatever. I'm talking, train your dog, teach them something new, let them forage for food, let them shred a toy, you know, whatever makes them happy. So, you know, I'm talking more, and I always make sure I explain that to clients because I'm not like, you know, a tired dog's a good dog, go run them. No, a tired dog is a good dog, but we're going to do a lot more than run them. Right. A dog has more than a body and a body needs more than physical exercise, right? So if you teach people every aspect of an animal's needs, a dog's needs, and we're making sure that we're meeting all those needs, you have an entire toolbox and lots of tools to solve any of the problems that could be contributing to your dog's behavior issues 
not just your one little hammer for your all your nail problems right so that's what that's part of the reason that Allie and i created the enrichment chart is because we wanted to help people do that in a meaningful tangible way rather than just telling people that here's how you can do that thank you emily so much for sharing all your knowledge i think this was fantastic and i'm going to try some of the stuff we talked about with my dogs and try to get it in there excellent thanks it was fun Emily is the co-author of Canine Enrichment for the Real World. You can purchase her book on Amazon or dogwise.com. Moving on to our Ask a Trainer segment, this topic sort of correlates to what we've been talking about. The topic is barking. It's a topic I see every now and then on the dog, day, dog daycare owner groups I'm part of and through videos I see through all the various social media ways. Uh, I saw a video recently where a family tried a bark collar that shocked and there are different bark collars and maybe Ali, you can explain the different kinds even though in the end they're all kind of do the same thing but anyway they were trying they were putting it on all the family members kids adults and videotaping them getting shocked with the bark collar and everyone was laughing even though you could see everybody was pained like it's just their face they were not excited about it but then they just put it on their dog and it's just in my mind i'm just like how can you after trying it and obviously being in that much pain and I think there's this belief that dogs' necks are thicker, that they're, that they don't feel as much pain. And, you know, and I don't know how much truth there is to that. It's just something that I've heard. And maybe I'll, you know, a little bit better about that. So we've, we've previously talked about barking being a way for a dog to communicate. It's in the ladder of aggression to tell us, you know, hey, something's wrong. I'm not comfortable. You know, there's always different types of barks. So it always scares me when people say bark collar because it's you're taking away the ability for the dog to bark. So Ali, how can we, how can we help a dog that is barking? Like my dogs who look out the window and like a leaf, a leaf moves and they start barking at that or dogs coming by, especially now that everybody's home during the, during while we're all at stay at home, what can we do to help relieve the stress for people at home? Every behavior from a dog has a function and this does include barking as well. So by using a bark collar, we aren't treating the roots of why the dog is barking, but instead we are just suppressing the behavior. So many, many times dogs will learn that they have the bark collar on. And when they don't have the bark collar on, then what happens is the behavior a lot of times is no longer suppressed and they will then bark again and, and begin their barking again. So most times you're not going to have your dog wear their bark collar 24 seven. Now, part of another problem with the bark collars because there are different kinds, some of them are more sensitive than others. So sometimes like if your dog lets out a whine or a growl or just some sort of noise, they get shocked. Some of the collars even are not sophisticated enough to understand that it's not that dog barking and maybe it picks up on a loud noise or it picks up on another dog in the home barking and it will shock that dog that's wearing the collar. So they are not foolproof. They are not safe to use because your dog doesn't necessarily get the correction every time it barks and sometimes it gets a correction when it doesn't bark. They are not a training tool obviously that I would recommend because A, they're punishment based, but also B, they're not a, a sound way to train your dog. You know, it's not a hundred percent accurate. Now what we need to do is work on 
figuring out why the behavior exists and then working on training it. So for example, you mentioned that your dogs bark out the window. Now their function, you know, whether it be annoying to us or not, is that they see something move or maybe they're hearing something we aren't hearing. Another element that goes into that is scent. You know, if they're picking up a gust of wind that is some animal scent that's blowing by, that can set them off. So it's not just my dog's going crazy and I don't see anything and I don't hear anything. Just because you can't see it and just because you can't hear it and just because you can't smell it doesn't mean they can't. So we do have to assess why they're barking and what we need to do in order to stop that. So that's where we're looking more at counter conditioning to stimuli. At my house, I have a window film on the front and the back doors, and my blinds stay closed unless I have my tree pouch on and I'm ready to jump up at any time and start counter conditioning to things. So I've heard, um, before you continue, so I've heard people putting window film on windows and it actually working. So how does that actually work if they can still hear, if they can still smell, like if the windows or a window is open and it comes through another window, but the window that they can look out of is is covered, is it just not having that sight just kind of calms them down a little bit? Cutting the sight usually helps a lot. Um, with my one dog who is, I don't know, I call her formerly reactive, but she has her moments. If she can hear dogs barking, she won't go as crazy if the windows and the blinds are closed, but she will get up and kind of search around if they're really, really close. So if they're like right outside my back windows, she'll get up and, you know, she'll get a little, little barky back, but it's a lot easier to redirect her than if she was able to see them. But usually if I hear the dogs barking and she kind of alerts to it, so say she's dead asleep on the couch and some of our neighbor dogs, which we're familiar with, start barking and I can hear them. If she doesn't take any notice, I'm not going to point it out to her. But if she even like opens her eyes, looks towards the window or anything like that, I'm going to go into my counter conditioning process and play who is that with her. Is that all you do for the counter conditioning or are there other, what are some, are there multiple ways to try to counter condition? I'm assuming it's all situational depending on what is actually your dog is re reacting to. No, I mean, so basically, you know, as long as, you know, we're looking at reactivity to a stimuli, whether it be seeing or hearing it, we basically, like I said, you know, we're going to play who is that. That's going to be our, our main counter conditioning method. It's just going to be your calm you're going to get treats in the presence of that stimuli. What do you do for dogs who, as some people complain on social media, and I've heard people talk to me too, like my dog just barks all the time. He, they, they just don't stop barking. They just, they're always just yapping. And, and, you know, like it, and it's not even just out the window. You could just be standing in there barking. How do you help an owner like that? What can they do at home to try to figure out what's going on? So we need to first address why the dog is barking. Again, like I said, every behavior has a function. So, you know, there is a reason more than likely why our dog is barking. And I say more than likely because it could just be a dog that, that has some pretty severe anxiety. There are breeds that do bark more than others because they genetically demand bark as they think that that gets them something. So like our border collies, for example, they demand bark quite often because that is 
their genetic predisposition because they communicate with each other and use those barking techniques to herd sheep. They will do a lot of demand barking at their owners. We do have to evaluate why the dog is barking. If the dog's running over to the window, you know, that's a counter conditioning thing. If the dog's standing in front of you while you're on your laptop barking at you, you know, that would be a let's enrich this dog and get them as tired as possible. The dog has some other anxiety behaviors and is anxious as a whole, then we're probably looking at seeing a veterinary behaviorist because that dog has anxiety and we have to treat the root of the anxiety in order to treat the root of the barking. So it's all just going to kind of depend on why the dog is barking. But in order to figure that out, you actually have to pay attention to, you know, when it's happening, what's going on around them that it's happening, where their barking's directed at. You know, you can usually tell pretty easily. Most dogs aren't just going to be barking all day for absolutely no reason. I, I don't know that I've ever had a dog that will just bark. There's always some reason behind yeah. why, why, why they're doing it, even if they're a breed that, like we had a Yorkshire Terrier or Yorkie, you know, before I learned about dogs, she was that dog that just barked all the time. And now I know it's a lot of demand barking is, is what she was doing, you know, if you weren't paying attention to her or whatever. But, you know, so I understand people's frustrations with dogs and it is hard because it's just some dogs, especially like the Yorkie had such a high pitched bark. It's just, you cringed every time she did it. Uh, we, we never, you know, we kind of just dealt with it. You know, I get it and it's hard. And this is, seems to be a big topic you know, on social media, in my dog daycare owner groups that, you know, especially in boarding and daycare settings where, you know, the dog just barks all the time. And it's just, you know, I've learned and from other trainers and and you also, it's, it's turning into in like a daycare setting. It could be that they're actually over aroused is why they're barking, you know, like, and I never would have thought that that was even a thing in kennel situations. You know, it's just the dog is stressed. The dog is scared. Yeah, and kennel situations are going to be entirely different as a whole than a home situation. You know, you could have a super quiet dog at home and they get into a daycare and, you know, like you said, they are over aroused. It's hard to go from playing for three hours to a nap period, especially if it's the first couple days that that dog is going to be there. Usually once they get used to the routine and they get used to being crated, you know, they're going to calm down. Perfect example, my dog Chunk, she can be crated at my house, but if I try to crate her anywhere else, she freaks out. So she will bark, she will throw herself up against the kennel. You know, that is not a behavior that I see at home. That is a situational behavior that she cannot be kenneled anywhere else. So she has a lot of anxiety due to that. So you're going to see behaviors in new settings that you may or may not see at home. So one thing we haven't talked about is using enrichment to help a dog not bark as much. So how would you use enrichment? Is who's that part of the enrichment or is there more that 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 you can do? So enrichment covers a lot of things. Enrichment can be, you know, mental stimulation. It can be physical stimulation. It can be letting your dog forage for treats. It can be letting your dog sniff on a walk. Enrichment by definition is the action of improving or enhancing the quality or value of something. So basically, you know, what that looks like for our dog is At my house, for example, I generally have anywhere from two to five dogs, just me all day, every day with, uh, you know, a good amount of dogs. So we start enriching 
right in the morning. So nobody eats out of bowls. Everybody eats out of some sort of feeder, babalot, snuffle mat, you know, even if it's just that I throw their kibble all over the floor and they have to search for it. You know, nobody just gets their meals for free, essentially. This gets them tired for at least the morning part where I'm rotating everybody else through their breakfasts. So that starts right there with some mental enrichment. Then we usually work on some more physical type stuff during the day. And then in the evening, usually we do a training session. And then a lot of times if I have dogs that can play, we will allow them to play towards the later hours of the evening. All these dogs are getting enriched constantly, which is why I am successful in having dogs that are quiet in the crates when it's not their turn to be out, when they still know that I'm home, they still know that we've got dogs all over, you know, one's out, one walks past another's kennel, you know, whatever it is. They know they're not alone in the house, which is why I'm able to do that because they're tired. So I always say a tired dog is a good dog. So we do have to enrich our dogs so that they are tired. For example, if my dog is out when I'm on my laptop and she hasn't had any enrichment for the day or a lack of enrichment for the day, she will literally start hitting my laptop with her nose. She will start pawing at me. She will start demand barking. She will, she's even gone as far as grabbing the corner of my laptop and pulling it off of my lap. So I make sure that she is either really, really tired and um, this is actually the second podcast this, well, we did one like what, two weeks ago and I took a picture and she was snoozing away. She's actually snoozing away right next to me because she's already been heavily enriched today. If she was not enriched and because I know that she will do those obnoxious demand behaviors, I will give her something to work on, whether it be Kong or a new bone or finding treats all over the living room while I work on my laptop or else I won't be allowed to get anything done according to her. Thank you for joining us for episode four. We hope you enjoyed learning about enrichment and how to help your dog with barking. If you have any more questions about enrichment or barking, please reach out to Allie at iwhisperk9slisten at gmail.com. Thanks to Emily Strong for talking about her book, Canine Enrichment for the Real World. If you would like to reach out to Emily, her email is emily at petharmonytraining.com. We have put a link to the enrichment chart and free guide that Emily mentioned in the show notes. If you are enjoying what you are hearing and haven't yet, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to us on. Please also join our Facebook group at Who's Training Who to chat about dogs, topics we talk about in the show, share funny or cool things dealing with dogs. We are open to whatever you want to talk about as long as it deals with dogs. If you have a topic idea or an ask a trainer question, please comment in our Facebook group or email info at waggytails.pet. Thanks for listening to Who's Training Who. Who's Training Who?